Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're doing a little series right now in the middle of the book of Acts. And so um, we're looking at different kind of episodes in the book of Acts and we're trying to think through what does it look like to be the church in this season. And today we're going to look at one of the most famous stories of conversion. We're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to, to the apostle Paul. And we're going to see how God brings about this conversion. We're going to look at it and we're going to find um, some of the elements that Paul experiences are really elements that all of us experience in our conversion. So let's read it. We'll pray and we'll get to work. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to each of us, that you would help us to see the beauty of salvation, the reality of conversion, the, the change that you can bring about in the soul and life of a human being. Lord, I pray that you would do that today, that, that, that people who are listening, people who are here, people who are tuning in online now or later, that they would hear the voice of the Lord and they would be changed forever. Lord, we pray for this incredible blessing that only you can perform. And we pray and ask for it in the name of that Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. 
All right, well, here's how we're going to frame this thing out. The story of Saul's conversion really gives us kind of a paradigm for how conversion works. And so he writes about that experience. Uh, He wrote a bunch of letters that ended up in the New Testament, and he describes what salvation looks and feels like. And he uses a, a lot of his own personal experience to kind of speak into that subject matter. So it really is a paradigm for us. It's how people experience saving faith. And um, therefore, as we look at it, we kind of find a pattern. And I want to suggest to you that this is a pattern that we can use. Um, When we do baptisms at our site, usually I'll interact with those individuals and I'll say, hey, I would love for you to write your testimony. Write your story to help me understand how God has dealt with you. And I kind of give them a template. And it's the same one that we'll use today for Saul. I ask them to answer the question, what was life like before your conversion? Who were you prior to your experience of coming to saving faith? What were some of the features of your life? That's the first thing. What was life like before conversion? The second thing that I ask people to speak into is, what was your gospel encounter? What were the events and circumstances and people that helped you to encounter the the risen Lord himself? And then finally, I ask, what, what has life been like since? What are some of the things that you've prioritized? What are some of the things that you're engaged with? And so we find the same three things being answered in the story of Saul here. So let's get to work. Number one, what was life like before conversion? For Saul, he was a very spiritual individual. He was a very religious individual. He was very passionate about the things of God, but he didn't know God in the appropriate way. Um, He thought that God fit into this particular box. He thought that God behaved in a certain way, and he thought that everyone who wanted to interact with God should understand that. He was a Jewish individual. He was a Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. He loved the Bible. He loved the God of the Bible, but he didn't really know that God very well. And so who was he before he became a Christian? He was an individual who was very religious, but very angry. Let's look at verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Last week, we looked at the story of Stephen. Stephen was a follower of Christ who began to explain that the entire Bible was leading toward and pointing toward Christ, and and they ended up um, stoning him to death uh, in chapter 7 and into the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul was there. You actually can, can read about it. You can see that Saul was there giving approval to their killing of Stephen. And then a great persecution breaks out against the church, against the followers of Christ, and they're scattered then. And Saul is is this person who's feeling like there are a group of people who are dead wrong about God and they're doing harm. And I don't like that. And I don't think God likes that. And so I'm going to do something about it. And he's got this hostility about him and this passion about him. And so he's willing to find people who who are teaching this way that he thinks is false and wrong. And he's willing to grab them and capture them and imprison them and even do harm to them. And when they get scattered and when they get persecuted, he's like, whoa, 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 I'm not letting you off the hook so easily. He goes and he obtains legal ground to go after them. That's in verse one and two of our chapter. It says, he went to the high priest and he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, 
he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He says, I'm so passionate about this concept that I'm going to travel to the places where they've been scattered and I'm going to obtain legal permission to capture them and bring them back. They're, they're not getting away so easily. He's this person who's very religious, but he's very hostile. He's zealous. He's passionate. He's, uh, he, he's a person of truth and he wants people to know and understand that truth. And he's just going after that as best as he knows how. And the reason why he's so committed to this thing is because of the kind of person he is. He tells us about it in his letter to the Philippians. He tells us about kind of his religious experience. And he's the kind of person who's always at church. He's always, you know, doing the right thing. He's always trying to obey God. He's always, you know, doing the stuff that you would look at him and you'd go, this guy is a great guy. He's, he cares deeply about God and God's ways. So in Philippians, he describes it like this in chapter three, verses four to six. He says, if someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to kind of list out his spiritual heritage. And he's pointing to the fact that he grew up with the people of God. He had a privileged upbringing and, and religious training and all of that stuff. And he says, and I just gave my life to these things. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now that's an incredible claim. He's saying, I care so much about my spirituality that I listen to everything that the word says and I do my very best to accomplish that. And in that regard, I'm faultless. I care so much about the things of God that I have devoted my life to this. I order my life around this. I'm a Pharisee. I spend my time and my energy studying and observing the word of God. Nonetheless, he's this hostile individual who's looking at the followers of the way and looking at them as they are problems. They are not okay. Here's, here, here's why I think that this matters so deeply. There is a reality about us that we can be self-deceived. That you're in church or tuning in online doesn't necessarily mean that you're a Christian. You might be going through all these different motions of Christianity, but, but I want to ask you, what does the interior of your life really look like? What, what, what gets you fired up? I, I'm to the point now where I'm willing to say, if there's hostility in you, if there's this kind of anger that's just kind of bubbling under the surface, I, I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care, you know, the, the things that you've done. I, I think that if there's that degree of anger and hostility in you, something's not right. Something with your relationship, with your spirituality is off. If, if that's the case, I, I think that God is inviting you today and revealing today that there's something that actually needs to change. And that's what's going on with Paul here. He is being challenged by God. And God is doing something in his experience prior to conversion that's just kind of uh, moving him toward having to consider who Christ really is. In fact, Paul tells the, the story of his conversion later on in the book of Acts. In Acts ch uh, chapter 26, he's talking about this, this event. And he describes how uh, he, he, he kind of says something that doesn't show up in, in our chapter, but it shows up later. I'm going to read it to you. We'll put it up on the screen as well. 
at about noon, King Agrippa. So he's talking to a king and he's saying, here's my story. I was traveling on a road, a bright light shone about me. He, he, he describes it this way. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's the thing that doesn't show up in our text, but I think it's important. Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And for all of us, we're like, what is that, right? And I, I don't have any clue what a goad is. A goad is a, a shepherding instrument. So you've got sheep, you've got a shepherd trying to lead them around. And I don't know if you know this about sheep, but they're, they're obstinate and they're foolish and they kind of want to go their own direction and they might be cruising toward harm, but the shepherd's job is to keep them together and to lead them to green pastures and places of safety and uh, places where they can feed and, and, and eat and drink and, and experience, you know, what sheep are supposed to experience. But the shepherd has a responsibility to keep them together. And oftentimes sheep want to wander off in the, in the perilous direction, in the wrong direction and go towards something that's going to do it harm. And so one of the instruments that a shepherd would have is a sharp stick. And so you begin to kind of push the, poke the animal, like you want to go this way, but I'm not going to make it easy for you to go that way. And sheep, which, you know, this is kind of ironic that this becomes the main metaphor for church work. You've got sheep and a pastor, a shepherd who's trying to lead people. And I, sometimes I got to poke you, you know, I know you're, you want to go this way. It's not going to be good for you. I'm going to have to poke you a little bit. And then you start kicking at it. And Jesus is saying, you're kicking at this instrument that's intended to move you toward what's good. Here's what, here's what Jesus is saying to, to Saul. I am trying to get you where you need to be. And you're resisting. And I understand that that's hard. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's painful. But I've got some things that I'm prodding you with because I'm moving you toward what is ultimately best for you. So what are some of the goads? What are some of the ways in which Jesus was kind of pushing Saul toward reconsidering everything? One of them shows up in our text here. It shows up in verse two. It's the idea that there are people who are followers of the way. Look at verse two. He asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It's interesting that this is how they're described. It's using this unique phrase that says, Christians are people who are, who are following the way, the way. And it's kind of using this phrase that's, that's emphasizing, these are people who really do understand the way. You think you're so right, Saul, but these are the individuals that you're persecuting. They are followers of the way. He's, he's goading him. He's prodding him. He's saying, look, do you understand that you think you're so right when in reality, they're following the way of salvation. They're following the Lord who gave of his own life and is the way to the father. They're following the way. And you're claiming that you know what's best and they're wrong. There's a little goad and it's having him causing him to reconsider. Here's another goad that I think is close by. It's the story of Stephen. Can you imagine the effect that that event had on him? So Stephen is preaching his heart out and everyone gets angry with him and they, the mob kind of encircles him and they stone him to death. And Saul is right there 
giving approval to it all. He's right there. He's present in the mob as they're angrily murdering an individual. And Stephen, as we're told, has the face of an angel. He, he, he's, he's having, he has the face of an angel. And in verses 59 and, and 60 of chapter 7, it says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep in death and Saul approved of their killing him. That's a goad right there. He's watching this individual who's so passionate about Christ that he's willing to lay down his life on behalf of Christ. He's getting killed. He's getting executed. And while that's happening, what is he doing? He's praying for people. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Okay, first off, I'm sure that infuriated Saul. I'm sure he looked at that and he said, I hate this guy. I hate these people. But at the same time, can you imagine how that haunted him? That he watched the execution of an individual and while that was happening, that person was so full of the spirit of God that he was praying for his murderers. I think that that's a goad. I think that the love of enemy, the love of neighbor, the love that Stephen displayed probably caused Saul to reconsider. All right, here's the last one that I'll share with you. Saul writes about this in another place. In Romans chapter seven, he describes how God had been working on him. And he talks about how he loved the law of God. And he actually, like we've already mentioned, did a really good job at obeying it. He was faultless. He could look at all the 10 commandments and he could say, I do all these things. I don't murder, you know, I, 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 I don't do these things that the Bible has told me not to do. I, I love God. I, I, I do this. I don't steal from other people. I don't do these different things. Um, but then he gets to the 10th commandment. This is Romans chapter seven. And he says, but then there was one that, that just got on my inside. And here's what it was. The law told me not to covet. And all of a sudden I realized I'm jacked up on the inside. The law told me not to want my neighbor's possessions, not to want my neighbor's wife or anything else. And and the truth is I had to come to grips with the fact that I can obey the letter of the law. I can do all the stuff right. But the problem is an interior problem. And when he came to that conclusion, he began to see, I can't save myself. I need somebody who can fix me from the inside out. All of these different goads are, I think, ways that God was kind of working on Paul to get him to consider maybe Jesus really is who he claimed to be. And that's exactly what happens. He comes to reconsider Christ as Lord and Savior. So the first thing that we're finding here is who we were prior to our conversion. And we need to be aware I think the story reminds us that it's possible to be self-deceived. We can be at church, watching online. We can, we can be participating in all these Christian activities. We, we need to be willing to ask the question, do I really follow Christ? Or am I tricking myself? And I think one of, the, one of the tools that we can evaluate ourselves with is, how do we deal with our enemies? How do we deal with people who think different than us? Are we angry and hostile and passionate that they're so wrong and we need to prove them wrong? Or do we have the love of Christ that's willing to say, don't 
hold their sin. Father, please forgive them. I think that that's a good indication of where we're at spiritually. Um, we we got to be careful because we do love truth. We do want people to know the God of the Bible. We, we can be passionate about that. We can be crusaders for truth. But as Fran Schaefer has said, orthodoxy without compassion, being right without actually loving people is surely the ugliest thing in the world. We can be right, but if it shows up in our relationships in a way that's just harmful and does injury to people, that's actually ugly. That's actually bad. So let's look at ourselves and say, are we loving toward other people? Are we recognizing the work of Christ and what it's done for us? And it, it really is never too late to turn to Christ and to receive his forgiveness. So what's your story before conversion? Secondly, what's your gospel encounter? We find this in verses three to nine. What's the, the season or the experiences or the single event that led you to recognize Christ for who he really is? Let's look at Saul's experience here in verses three to five. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. So Saul has this interaction, this real interaction with the Lord. He has this uh, experience where the Lord speaks directly to him, revealing you are going against me. And, and there's this gospel encounter, this gospel encounter here in verses three to five. Now, obviously it's unique in some ways. I'm not going to encourage you. You know what? You need to get on a plane. You need to fly to the Middle East. You need to go to the road to Damascus and hope that Jesus comes and knocks you down. You don't have to do all the same exact things, but those realities that Paul experienced are universal. When he talks about salvation in, in his letters, he, he talks about it by saying, what I experienced in real time is something that every person who's a true convert experiences. I had scales on my eyes. I literally couldn't see. But everyone apart from Christ is spiritually blind. They need that removed. And he speaks about that in different places. What is your gospel encounter? Here's how it normally happens today. The gospel encounter comes when people um, experience the message of the gospel. So Paul, again, writing in Romans chapter 10, he's describing, here's how somebody encounters the Lord. They, they come to saving faith when they hear the message. So Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Paul is saying the way that somebody encounters the Lord today in a very real and profound way is they hear the gospel, the gospel proclaimed to them. Now, this doesn't mean they have to go to a church service or hear a preacher. This can happen at a coffee shop. This can happen over a meal. This can happen in ordinary conversations. But they hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And the Holy Spirit takes that message, the word of Christ, and it, it makes it real to them. And it makes it come alive to them. And so people come to saving faith when they hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed to them. And the Holy Spirit takes that and makes it tangible, makes it real, makes it life-altering. Um, many of us could talk about that. We, we could talk about maybe a season where conversations were happening and Jesus was becoming more and more real to us. Some of us might be able to look at a conference or an event or a specific sermon 
But saving faith comes when we hear the message of Christ crucified and risen. Now that experience is traumatic. When we encounter Christ, it changes us on the spot. It's traumatic in the best possible way. Let's look at verses six to nine. It says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and he didn't eat or drink anything. So it's traumatic. It's something that you don't just walk away from and never consider it. It's something that's so traumatic for him that he sits there for three days without eating or drinking, unable to see anything. And he just has to sit with his thoughts. Who is the Lord? Who is this Jesus that I've been persecuting? Is he really the crucified and resurrected Messiah? That he's alive gives proof that God has vindicated him. I thought that this was some false teacher. I thought that this was some kind of false paradigm, but now I'm having to wrestle with, maybe he really is the son of God. Maybe he really is the king of glory. Maybe he really is savior, Messiah. So he's traumatized by this experience and it's shifting his paradigms. He's having to reconsider his entire life. That's what Christianity does. It's not simply an addendum to your life. Like I want Jesus on my team to bless me. I want him to make my life better. When you experience Jesus in a saving way, it's, it's traumatizing. You, you sit with that and you go, everything changes. He's real. Everything changes. My entire life now, he's not some little thing I tack onto my life. My entire life needs to orient around him. He becomes the very center of my experience, my identity. He's everything to me. So it's traumatic in that way and it's humbling. It's a humbling experience too. John Stott in his commentary, he talks about this experience for Saul and he said, he who expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into the city, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. That's the kind of conversion we're talking about. When you get so wrecked, it's like a collision with the Lord of glory. And your life is, you just feel like everything has just fallen apart. Everything that you once considered to be so important and so supreme in your life, now all of a sudden you're having to reorder everything around the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you feel humbled in the best possible way. And you feel like you're, you're now going to rise up to live in a way that's pleasing for him. That is conversion. When you come to know the risen and reigning Christ in that real and personal and devastating way, that's what it really means to be a Christian. All right, thirdly, who we're becoming since our conversion. We see this in verses 10 to 19. So after having that gospel encounter, there's kind of some aftermath. Your life is changing and there are some things that you begin to do and do differently. And I'm going to point them out here. They show up in, in the story um, and hopefully you don't think I'm making too much of them. But one of the things that you begin to do after becoming a Christian is you begin to engage in what's called spiritual disciplines. You pray, you open the scriptures, you practice solitude, you, maybe you journal, maybe you fast, maybe you serve, you do these different things but you do them incredibly different than maybe you even did them before. 
when you come to know Christ in a saving way, you begin to do all those things, not, not, not just because you think that's what good people should do. You do that because by doing them, they help you to know your savior even better. Let's look at Saul here in verses 10 and following. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for the man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Here's what, here's what Paul is doing in this moment. He's praying. He's praying and he's talking to God and God is speaking to him. He's engaging in a spiritual discipline and he's doing it in a way where now he's hearing God speak over him. He's hearing God give him directions for what to do moving forward. He's engaging in these spiritual disciplines in a way that helps him to know his savior. I want to encourage you to practice spiritual disciplines. True believers are people who want to use their Bible to know Christ better, who want to spend their time in prayer to know Christ better, who want to do all these different activities because they're a means by which we get to know our Savior better and better and better. Christians are people who practice spiritual disciplines. People, Christians are also people who have their identity changed. Now, Ananias has a little dialogue with the Lord and he says, I don't want to go. And the Lord reminds him, here's the work that I'm doing. Look at verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Here's what happens in the aftermath of coming to faith in Christ. God begins to speak over you, your new purpose and your new identity. He's telling Ananias, but Ananias will relay that to Paul. Here's who you are. You are God's chosen instrument to bring this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. You're God's chosen instrument to go and make this message known. You're going to proclaim this before kings, before leaders. You're going to tell people the good news of the gospel. And you're going to suffer for my name. This is something that I think every Christian can onboard. This new identity that we get by placing our faith in Christ. God says to all of us, we become ambassadors of Christ. We become representatives. We get to go out into the watching world and make known the news of our Lord and Savior, crucified, resurrected, and reigning. We have this awesome calling. That's a part of what it means to be a Christian, that you get onboarded onto the team, that you get co-opted into the mission of God. And God uses you in very profound ways. And then you also find out that by associating with him, you'll suffer for his name. And I think that that's evidence of, of a true conversion, a person who's willing to say, I'll stand with Christ, even if it costs me dearly. I'll stand with him. I'll suffer for his name because I love him so dearly. Look what he's done for me. So you get a new identity when you come to faith in Christ. You also get plugged in to a spiritual community. Now, Ananias is being told, I want you to go to this house and I want you to find this individual and I want you to lay hands on him. And what does he say? No, thank you. Like, yeah, I've heard reports about this dude. This guy is nasty. Uh, look at verses 13 and 14. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. 
why would you think that I should just march into this environment where somebody who has a warrant for my arrest, who wants to drag me back to Jerusalem and kill me, why do you think that's a great idea? Why do you think I'd be okay with that? But God persuades him and he goes, look at verse 17, Ananias went to the house, he entered it, placed his hands on Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm trying to point out. When you become a Christian, here's what God does. He plugs you into a faith community. And this is such an important feature. It's weird for us because we're very private. We consider ourselves to be individuals. A lot of people think I can follow Christ without his body, without his church. In fact, they're a liability to me. I'm much faster. I'm much better. Uh, I can do things without them. But here's what God does. He says, no, no, no. If you want to experience the fullness of following Christ, you actually need those people. And here's why. It's in that environment where the beauty of the gospel comes alive. It's in that environment where this idea about being forgiven and loved and cared for comes to life because you're going to have to experience that. What does it mean? God is plugging us into a community. And here's what's wild. Three days ago, this was a, this was a relationship that was, you know, unable to be reconciled. Saul was coming to arrest people like Ananias and have them murdered. Okay, now here's what happens in, in the wake of the gospel. They embrace. He has to lay hands on him. He has to look at his enemy. Ananias has to do this and Saul has to receive it. They have to embrace. They have to physically touch. And by doing that, there's this experience of the power of the gospel. If I'm really changed by a Lord who loves me and saved me and forgives me, then I go into this community where there's going to be conflict and there's going to be difficulty. And this is true of every single church and every single faith community. I'm going to go into a community, there's going to be conflict, but here's the beauty of it. We have to embrace. We have to deal with these people. And by doing that and working out the power of reconciliation and forgiveness and doing that in real time, it actually makes the truth of the gospel come alive. We begin to see that God cares deeply for us. And he's changing us as we interact with other people who maybe we would even consider to be enemies. But God says, no, you're going to love them and you're going to care for them. And you're going to experience the life-changing power of the gospel through them. So God has given us community. Please do not neglect the community of believers. I'm so glad that we're figuring out how to do this thing together. But moving ahead, we, we have to think, how can I come in a closer proximity with my family. I need this. I need this so that I might know my Savior better and better. I need people to, to touch me and to look at me and to love me and to care for me. And, and I need to do that for them. But one of the things that shows your conversion is your love for that experience, your movement toward that community. All right, finally, people who come to saving faith in Christ take steps of faith and obedience. Look at verses 18 and 19. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, having been prayed over by Ananias. He gets his sight back. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then if you keep reading on, what does he do? He starts to minister in the name of the Lord. People who are converted begin to just take next steps of faith. What does Saul decide to do on day one? 
having received his sight, having, you know, experienced this love, this tangible love from Ananias, having received this new identity and this new purpose, what does he do? He says, well, okay, I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to go public with my faith. I'm going to associate myself with this community that formerly I was persecuting, but now I'm going to say, I am so in love with this Lord and Savior that I'm following him. I'm connecting my life with his crucifixion and his resurrection through baptism. And I'm publicly identifying myself with his community. And then what does he do? He takes food and regains his strength and he gets to work. One of the, one of the effects of saving faith is we're always looking for the next step of obedience. We're, we're just processing our days going, what does the Lord want me to do today? Maybe it's to get baptized. Some of us maybe have put that off for way too long and maybe we just say, you know what? I'm gonna go public with my faith. I'm gonna enter the, the, the waters, uh, the burial waters and I'm gonna be raised in new life with Christ. And, and then, you know, all of us need to be thinking through, okay, what does it look like so, so that I can just do my life just eating and drinking and going about my business in a way that reflects the glory of God? I'm gonna take steps of obedience and faith. That's what Christians do. So we've got three things here. Who we were before experiencing Christ. Some of us maybe are religious and bitter, angry and hostile. Jesus can change us. He's goading us. He's trying to get us to move toward understanding who he really is. Then we have a gospel encounter. We hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for us, and it comes alive. We place our faith in him. We believe in him, and we're radically changed. And then what do we do? We work out that salvation with fear and trembling. We begin to take steps of obedience and faith, reading our Bibles, watching and loving people who are different than us, um, being involved in community, caring for other people, and then just doing whatever it is that the Lord asks us to do. And that's a beautiful thing, and I want every person who can hear my voice to experience that saving faith, that conversion, and that new life. So let me pray. Lord, right now, um, we're grateful for the way that you can change us. We're grateful, God, that you can do an incredible work by your spirit that makes us new and different. And I'm praying right now that everyone who's listening to my voice could actually experience the resurrected Lord right now. Maybe for the first time in a profound way, that will result in a paradigm shift and a life-altering newness. But even for those of us that have been believers for a long time, Lord, would you, even in this moment, make the Lord profoundly real to us and help us to renew our commitment to serving him and loving him, following him, glorifying him in everything that we do. Would you help us to do that, please, in his name? Amen.